This is Space Time Series 23, Episode 60, for broadcast on the 17th of June 2020. Coming up on Space Time, probing the mysteries of the galaxy's fascinating Fermi bubbles, NASA's new Lunar Gateway Space Station, and work begins on the Artemis 3 service module. That's the module which will take people back to the lunar surface. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have studied the Milky Way's mysterious Fermi bubbles in visible light for the first time. The Fermi bubbles are two enormous outflows of high-energy gas, reaching far out into space some 23,000 light-years above and below the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. Looking side-on with our Milky Way galaxy in the middle, the Fermi bubbles form an hourglass shape, broiling in gamma and X-rays stretching out from the galactic center. They were first detected by NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope back in 2010 and are thought to be the remains of the last big meal consumed by Sagittarius A-star, a supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Located some 27,000 light-years away, Sagittarius A-star contains some 4.3 million times the mass of the Sun. Astronomers have now used the Wisconsin Hydrogen Alpha Mapper, or WAM, telescope to measure the emissions of light coming from hydrogen and nitrogen in the Fermi bubbles at the same position as recent ultraviolet absorption measurements made by the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble data, reported in 2017, suggests that each of the Fermi bubble's two lobes contains enough cool gas to generate some 2 million sun-sized stars. Those scientists reached their conclusions by observing ultraviolet light from 47 background quasars using Hubble's Cosmic Origins and Space Telescope imaging spectrographs in order to map out the motions of the cool gas within the northern bubble, pinning down its age to between 6 and 9 million years. Quasars are supermassive black holes feeding in the early universe. They're generated by material being ripped apart at the subatomic level in the accretion disk surrounding a black hole and then releasing that energy and matter prior to passing beyond the event horizon, the point of no return, after which material falls forever into the singularity. That energy and matter which is flung out before reaching the event horizon is focused into two superluminal jets, beaming out in opposite directions perpendicular to the accretion disk, and often extending for hundreds of thousands of light-years. The Fermi bubbles are thought to be related to similar events that occurred in our Milky Way's own supermassive black hole. The lead author for this new study, Dinesh Krishnario from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, says that these faint but highly energetic outflows of gas are racing away from the centre of the Milky Way at millions of kilometres an hour. Krishnario and colleagues combine the two measurements of emission and absorption lines to estimate the density, pressure and temperature of the ionised gas in order to test various models of the Fermi bubbles against observations to better understand what's really happening. WAM will also allow the authors to undertake density, pressure and velocity measurements at multiple locations, allowing them to develop detailed maps of the bubbles above and below the plane of the galaxy to see if existing models are holding up. The thing is, the central region of the Milky Way is really difficult to study because of the veil of gas and dust blocking our view. Previously, only infrared and radio waves were able to peer through this curtain. But now, the WAM telescope is providing opportunities to gather the kinds of information on the Milky Way, which up until now, astronomers have only been able to get on other more distant galaxies. 
thereby allowing astronomers to better compare our Milky Way with those other galaxies. This is space time. Still to come, NASA's new Lunar Gateway space station. And work begins on the Artemis III service module, which will eventually take humans back to the lunar surface after a break of more than 50 years. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. You may be wondering why you need a virtual private network. Well, it's in the name. It's all about privacy. Do you really want big brother tech companies, hackers, governments, and who knows who else snooping in on your online activities? Now, you might not have anything to hide, but it's still really creepy, and it could be dangerous for you and those you care about. Also, how often do you run across a website and you want to get information from it, but you find out that they're geo-blocked? It's all very frustrating, and it's becoming an increasing problem. And that's where ExpressVPN can help you. ExpressVPN's a simple and efficient way to protect your online privacy. It's internet without borders from the world's leading VPN provider. So, protect your online privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com space. That's tryexpressvpn.com space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com space to learn more. And, of course, you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. That's tryexpressvpn.com space. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA has finalized its contract for the crew habitation module for its new Gateway Lunar Orbiting Space Station. Northrop Grumman subsidiary Orbital Sciences has been awarded the $187 million contract to design what's officially called the Habitation and Logistics Outpost, or HALO, for the new space station, which will be an integral part of NASA's Artemis program. Gateway will provide a sort of staging post for human missions to the lunar surface and eventually onto Mars. HALO will be the pressurized living quarters where astronauts will spend their time while visiting Gateway. Its designs based on that of the Northrop Grumman Cygnus cargo ship, which is currently used to deliver supplies to the International Space Station. About the size of a small studio apartment, it will provide augmented life support in tandem with NASA's Orion spacecraft. A second contract, expected to be finalized before the end of this year, will actually authorize Northrop Grumman to build the module, which will be integrated with Gateway's Power and Propulsion Element, or PPE, module by the end of 2023. The PPE is being designed and built by Maxar Technologies and will be equipped with a high-powered 60-kilowatt solar electric propulsion system. In addition to providing power and communications, its substantial maneuvering capabilities will allow the Gateway Space Station to change orbits, enabling crews to reach any part of the lunar surface. These first two elements of Gateway, HALO and PPE, will be launched together in 2023. Now, that's different from the original plan, which called for the two modules to be launched separately and then docked later in translunar orbit. NASA says launching the pair as a single unit will reduce both costs and technical risks. And thanks to its new SLS heavy lift launch system, it's got the grunt to launch it. The two modules will also include components developed by the European Space Agency, the Canadian Space Agency, and JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, together with numerous scientific payloads from other research institutes. 
Initially, it'll also provide a place to relay communications and to act as a base for scientific research. Now, current plans call for Gateway to include the PPE, or Power and Propulsion Element module, the HALO, or Habitation and Logistics Outpost module, as well as a separate communications module, a connecting node for docking visiting spacecraft, an airlock for spacewalks, and an operations station to command the Gateway's robotic arm and lunar rovers on the Moon's surface. Astronauts will occupy the 40-ton space station for up to 90 days at a time. Gateway will be placed into a highly elliptical translunar orbit known as the Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. Instead of orbiting directly around the Moon in a low lunar orbit, sort of like the International Space Station does around the Earth, Gateway will follow a highly eccentric path. At its closest, it'll be about 3,000 kilometers above the lunar surface. But the orbit will then cause it to swing out to some 70,000 kilometers away from the Moon in its most distant orbital position. The idea is to allow Gateway to be both relatively close to the Moon for excursions down to the lunar surface, and also to position it to allow shorter trips for spacecraft travelling to or from Earth with crew and supplies. See, most current rockets don't have enough power to reach the Moon in a single go, but they could reach Gateway. Now, after liftoff and once beyond the Earth, only a moderate manoeuvre will be needed to slow a visiting spacecraft enough to rendezvous with Gateway. Europe's Ariane, for example, would be able to deliver supplies for astronauts for use on missions to the Moon or for deeper into space. At the other end of the orbit, when Gateway is closest to the Moon, which happens roughly every seven days, lunar landers docked to the Gateway space station would be able to transport crew, robots and infrastructure down to the Moon's surface. Likewise, a transfer window to Gateway opens roughly every seven days for return trips from the lunar surface. Gateway's orbit's also designed to rotate together with the Moon as the Moon orbits around the Earth. Orbits like this are possible because of the interplay between the Earth and the Moon's gravitational forces. As two large bodies dance through space, a smaller object can be caught in a variety of stable or at least near-stable positions in relation to the orbiting masses. These are known as Lagrangian points, and Gateway will be located in one of these Lagrangian points directly between the Earth and the Moon. Now, these locations are perfect for planning long-term missions and, to some extent, dictate the design of the spacecraft, what it can carry to or from orbit, and how much energy it needs to get and stay there. As we mentioned earlier, travelling in this near-rectilinear halo orbit, one revolution of Gateway in its orbit around the Moon would take about seven Earth days. Now, this period was specially chosen to limit the number of eclipses, when the Gateway would be shrouded by the Earth or Moon's shadow. However, near-rectilinear halo orbits are slightly unstable, and objects in these orbits do have a tendency to drift away. So, regular small station-keeping manoeuvres will be needed in order to keep Gateway in its orbit for several years at a time. Meanwhile, work's about to get underway on the European Space Agency's service module that will power the Orion spacecraft that will carry the first astronauts to walk on the Moon in more than 50 years. The service module will fly on the Artemis III mission, which is slated to launch in 2024. The mission will carry four astronauts to the Gateway space station, and from there, two astronauts will board a lunar module for the journey down to the lunar south pole. The European service module is designed to supply everything needed to keep the crew aboard the Orion capsule alive during their journey to the moon and back. That includes air, propulsion, water supplies, even maintaining a comfortable temperature. More than 20,000 components will go into building the module, ranging from computers and electrical equipment through to rocket engines, the four large solar panels extending some 19 metres across, fuel tanks and life support systems, as well as more than 12 kilometres of cables. 
Attached above the service module will be the Orion crew capsule, and below it will be the mighty SLS Moon Rocket, the biggest and most powerful launch vehicle built since the Saturn V. This will actually be the third service module built. The first, which will be used on the unmanned Artemis I flight, which is now undergoing testing in the US, will be officially handed over next year. The second will be for the Artemis II manned flight around the Moon and back to Earth. That's now under construction at the Airbus Defence and Space Facility in Germany. The 13,500 kg service module's design is based on the earlier automated transfer vehicles which flew to the International Space Station aboard Ariane 5 rockets carrying regular deliveries of supplies and equipment. To supply Orion, it'll carry 8.6 tonnes of fuel to power Orion's main engine as well as its 32 smaller manoeuvring thrusters for attitude control to keep Orion on course. The 4-metre-long module can also transport unpressurised cargo and scientific payloads. This report from East TV. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. For over 50 years, we've been inspired by these iconic images of the first humans to walk on the moon. Now the European Space Agency and NASA are working together on a modern-day version of the Apollo program. Called Artemis, it will put astronauts back on the lunar surface. The Apollo missions have mainly landed in the illuminated equatorial area of the Moon, but there are much more interesting areas to be explored, like the poles and like the dark side of the Moon. The today most visible European contribution to lunar exploration programs is the ESA-developed service module, the propulsion and power module of the Artemis crew module. The European service module, or ESM, is the heart of the Artemis spacecraft. It will provide electricity, water and air to NASA's Orion crew capsule, as well as maintaining temperature for life support. Its engines will provide propulsion and navigation control for the journey to the moon and back. ESA's industrial partner Airbus has already built two service modules for Orion, with hardware from companies throughout Europe. Now they've signed a contract with ESA to develop a third module. Artemis III will see a woman and a man walk on the lunar surface, continuing where the Apollo program left off almost half a century ago. We have companies in 10 countries helping to put this ESM together, and actually there are hundreds and thousands of people working within Airbus, but all in our partner companies to make this endeavor a successful mission. ESA's ESM-1 and NASA's Orion crew capsule, having recently completed space simulation tests at NASA's Plum Brook Station in Ohio, will be used for an uncrewed certification flight, performing a six-day orbit around the moon. This first joint step towards revisiting the lunar surface will continue the long-standing tradition of international cooperation in space. Space is one of the best examples for international cooperation uh, in terms of science and technology. Our ISS is a multinational project and uh, we've seen a lot of projects there that really bring together the whole community in terms of um, space and exploration and um, to do this work together as scientists working on the same aim, uh, working for mankind. The next two flights of the Artemis program will be crewed lunar missions 
with power, propulsion and life support, also provided by the second and third European service modules. The moon is really our eighth continent and uh, it's there to be discovered. Astronauts, engineers and scientists are very excited to go to the moon because it's uh, pure exploration. It's uh, discovering terra incognita. We would go to regions that were never been well, explored by a human, uh, neither robotically nor in person. The first European service module will soon be on its way to the moon. Artemis 1 is scheduled for launch in late 2021. It will mark the beginning of this ambitious programme to explore the Moon and beyond, highlighting ESA's ability to deliver critical components based on proven technology. And that report from ESA TV featured Nico Dietman and Andreas Hammer from ESA Human and Robotics Exploration, as well as Klaus-Peter Welch, Chair of Aviation and Space Group with the German Bundestag, and ESA astronaut Alexander Gerscht. This is Space Time. Still to come, SpaceX launches another 60 Starlink satellites and later in the science report, news that patients with COVID-19 who undergo surgery have a higher risk of complications and death. All that and more coming up on Space Time. SpaceX has launched another 60 Starlink Internet satellites, bringing its total now to 482. The mission, which has been delayed since the middle of May due to Tropical Storm Arthur in the booster landing zone, was flown aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Space Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Following stage separation, Falcon 9's first stage returned safely to the planet's surface, landing on the drone ship Just Read the Instructions, which had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. This drone ship had previously been based on the Pacific West Coast for SpaceX launches from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, but had just been through a major refit. SpaceX's usual Atlantic drone ship, of course I still love you, was busy being utilised to return the Demo-2 booster back to port. The Starlink 7 mission coming just days after SpaceX flew the Demo-2 mission from nearby Space Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center, carrying astronauts aboard the Crew Dragon 2 capsule to the International Space Station for the first time. It's the first time that both of SpaceX's drone ships were operating the same ocean. Falcon 9 is in the startup. Go for launch. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3... Two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff. And Falcon 9 has successfully lifted off from Pad 40 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, carrying our Starlink payload to its targeted drop-off orbit. Moments ago, we did throttle down our engines in preparation for Max Q. And that is the maximum aerodynamic pressure, which is the largest structural load that the vehicle will see. That's coming up here in a few seconds. Max Q. And there's that call out that we have just passed through Max Q. In about a minute, we will have three events happening back to back. The first of which will be main engine cutoff or MECO. This is where all nine M1D engines shut off to slow the vehicle down in preparation for the second event, which is stage separation. Stage separation is where the first stage separates from the second stage with the first stage first stage starting to make its way back to Earth for landing and stage two continuing on its journey with 
the third event called SES-1, or Second Engine Start 1. And that's where the MVAC engine lights up on the second stage and propels the second stage along with the Starlink satellites to its drop-off orbit. Nico. Stage separation confirmed. We had main engine cutoff in stage separation. The second stage MVAC engine lighting up, glowing bright red there. And it is a bit dark on the east coast. First stage, those grid fins are deploying. And we have fairing deploy coming fairing up separation here. separation confirmed. And there is that confirmation of fairing deploy. Now let's see if those fairing halves can be recovered by our recovery ships, Mistree and Mischief today. That will happen around T plus 40 minutes and stage two Still looking nominal. Stage one is making its way back. Signal Bermuda. And as the first stage makes its way back to Earth, it will perform two burns, the first of which will be the entry burn, and that is where three of the nine M1D engines reignite, and this helps slow the vehicle down as it re-enters back into the upper part of the Earth's atmosphere. And finally will be the second and final burn is the landing burn. And this is a single engine burn. That's the center E9 engine that reignites and brings the vehicle all the way down. Very, very rapidly slows the vehicle down so that it can touch down and land on the drone ship. Again, we are attempting to land the first stage today on just read the instructions as our, of course, I still love you drone ship was occupied with her demo two vehicle from over the weekend up until last night. We are at T plus five and a half minutes. Stage two still looking nominal and first stage making its way back. That first burn, that entry burn will be coming up in about a minute from now, around T plus six minutes and 45 seconds. And that entry burn will last about 20 seconds long. Again, that is to slow the vehicle down as it re-enters back into the Earth's atmosphere. Stage one FTS has saved. Stage one entry burn has started. And there you hear that call out and that those engines have reignited. The vehicle continues to follow nominal trajectory. And stage one entry burn shut down. And confirmation that the stage one entry burn is complete as well as stage two still looking nominal. Coming up next is the landing burn around T plus eight and a half minutes. Around eight minutes and 24 seconds. Right now, Stage you're one seeing, is transonic. followed very closely after the landing burn and landing of the first stage will be Seco 1, that is second engine cutoff around T plus 8 minutes and 58 seconds. Stage 1 landing burn has started. Terminal guidance. Landing legs have deployed. Stage 2 FTS has saved. That first stage, stage Falcon landed. 9. Landing operators moving to procedure 11.100 on. Recovery 1 and ECF 9. <laughs> Amazing, that first stage booster has landed for the first time, for the fifth time for a Falcon 9 booster. That is amazing. We're waiting for a second stage engine cut off, and we heard a call out of good orbit for second stage. Acquisition of signal, Newfoundland. Now that second stage is in a good orbit, it's going to coast for a few minutes, and during this time, it will start to spin along its central axis, giving these Starlink satellites Expected the momentum that they signal. need to spin space themselves out over time after they deploy. The mission marked the fifth flight for the same Falcon 9 first stage booster. It had previously flown on the Telstar 18 Vantage mission back in September 2018, the Iridium-8 mission in January 2019, and on two separate Starlink missions in May 2019 and January this year. This is Space Time.
And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that patients with COVID-19 or undergo surgery have a higher risk of complications and death. The findings, reported in the Lancet Medical Journal, looked at over a 1,000 patients from 24 countries who were COVID-19 positive at or around the time of their operation. The authors found that lung-related complications occurred in around half of all patients, and almost a quarter died within 30 days. The authors say men aged 70 and older who have emergency or major elective surgery were at an especially high risk of dying, and that thresholds for surgery during the pandemic need to be much higher than during normal practice. Scientists reviewing findings from 21 past studies have found that men and women who identify as gay, lesbian or bisexual tend to show different personality traits compared to those who identify as straight, especially among younger adults. The findings, reported in the Journal of Sex Research, looked at five major personality traits neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness and conscientiousness. The authors claim they found that gay men tend to be more emotionally unstable, more agreeable, and more conscientious than straight men, and that lesbian women tend to be more introverted, less agreeable, and less conscientious than straight women. Now, don't ring up a complaint. These are the findings in the survey, not my opinion. Additionally, they found that bisexual men and women lean more towards being open and more conscientious than both straight men and women and those who identify as exclusively gay or lesbian. The researchers claim these differences tended to decline with age, and they hope their research will help people gain a better self-awareness of their own personalities. A new study shows that big theropod dinosaurs, such as allosaurs and ceratosaurs, ate pretty much everything, including each other. A report in the journal PLOS One found high frequencies of theropod bite marks, suggesting feeding, scavenging, and even possible cannibalism in what was a highly stressed late Jurassic ecosystem. Paleontologists surveyed more than 2,000 bones from a 152 million year old Jurassic fossil deposit in western Colorado, specifically looking for bite marks, and they found much more than they were expecting. Not only were there theropod bites on large bodied theropods as gigantic bones dominated the assemblage, but there were also lots of bite marks on other theropods, especially Allosaurus. Well, it seems scientists are well on their way to inventing an invisible man, or sort of. A report in the journal Nature Communications claims researchers have engineered human cells that are capable of controllable and reversible transparency. Scientists augmented kidney cells with what's called a reflectant protein which squids use to turn parts of their body see-through. Now, it's a far cry from an entire person being invisible, but the authors say it's a technique that could be used by scientists to get a clearer view of processes occurring inside living cells and tissues. Or you could just borrow Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. And that's the show for now. Space Time is broadcast on Science Zone Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. and through both iHeartRadio and on TuneIn Radio. Or you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free podcast through Apple, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Audioboom, Podbeam, Android, CastBox, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com or from your favorite download podcast provider. You can help support the show and the work we do by visiting the Spacetime online shop and grabbing yourself a few goodies, or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to commercial-free double-episode versions of the show, as well as bonus audio content and other rewards. 
just go to our Patreon page through spacetimewithstuartgary.com for all the details. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 